this was driven by uh, wanting to enable uh, bullion banks to uh, borrow dollars more cheaply by securing the loans on their gold. Well, hello there, my friends. Chris Mark is here with you for Arcadia Economics. And we have a special show for you today because I'm quite excited to have a new guest join us for the broadcast who many of you, especially who follow and get the emails from GATA are familiar with because I am joined by Robert Lamborn, who has done some incredible research into the gold swaps that are taking place. And unfortunately, we often don't get much clarity about what's actually going on behind them, although Fortunately, Bob has been digging into this and a lot of the other things that go on in the gold and silver world. And really a pleasure having gotten to talk with Bob via email over the past couple of weeks as we were setting this up and a lot of information that I don't think people can find elsewhere. So, Bob, it's great to have you join us today. It's a pleasure to finally meet you and welcome on in. And before we get started, how is everything going with you today, my friend? Yeah, I'm fine. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, good to see you. Well, I appreciate you being here, and perhaps just to get started, um, if you could let people know a little bit about your background, how you got involved with GATA, and what led you to this turn in your life that probably a couple decades ago you didn't expect to be digging into, but maybe we could start there and then dig in from that. Yeah, sure. Well, I uh, went to uh, New Orleans Gold a conference a few years ago, maybe nearly 20 years ago, when I call it a few, and saw Chris and Bill there. Then I started following them, what they were doing. And, uh, you know, that got me more and more interested in gold. Uh, my work at the time was working in uh, public companies and I was dealing with financial matters. And I got a bit puzzled by the fact that interest rates kept going down. And uh, then I started looking at things like the, the Gibson's paradox, which uh, I'm sure a number of your audience will, will know about. And uh, so I just got more and more involved. And then I initially did some work for Bill and Chris um, when I looked at the thing in the UK called the exchange equalization account, which is where the government holds the UK's gold. And you may remember that uh, uh, several years ago, when Bill Clinton was the president and Tony Blair was the prime minister of the UK, quite a lot of that gold was sold. And it was sold out of the exchange equalization account. And I did some work looking into that. Uh, and that's really how it started. So uh, I'm far from an expert on gold. Um, you know, I'd call myself an interested amateur. Uh, but uh, because of my skills in accounting, et cetera, uh, I've just done some work from time to time for gather looking at figures. Uh, and I started looking at the Bank for International Settlements, the BIS, some years ago. And as I've already said to you, um, it was an interesting place to start looking because they were forced to publish the two papers, which I think you are going to show to people or show them a link to them if they want to read them. Um, and these papers were uh, something that um, uh, gave uh, a view on how they did gold transactions. Uh, they were driven by um, an investigation that was going on into the use uh, by the BIS, BIS of Nazi gold during the war. So it's quite an emotional topic. And they were forced to probably disclose more than they really wanted to do about how they actually did their business. And that was quite useful. And I started looking at that. 
And then about the same time in 2009-2010 financial year, uh, their financial year ends on 31st of March every time. So in the year from uh, 1st of April 2009 to 31st of March 2010, they started doing gold swaps. And um, it was quite interesting because they were obviously quite nervous about how this was going to be received because they did an interview with the Financial Times at the time. Um, and they were, I think, nervous that people might interpret this as being a sign that they were short of gold. Uh, well, I did decide that it probably was a sign they were short of gold, but their coverage, the story at the time, very much to the Financial Times, was that this was driven by uh, wanting to enable uh, bullion banks to uh, borrow dollars more cheaply by securing the loans on their gold. And the gold swap, in a way, is a, is a, for dollars, is a way of um, actually, I guess, borrow, you could argue borrowing dollars with, with the gold as a security. So that's how it all started. And I mean, uh, we, we being Chris Powell and I, and Chris is the chap I do most of the work with at Gatter. Uh, Chris and I were looking at it. I used to report on it annually. And then we started thinking, well, hang on, this is actually, you know, they're trading all the time and you could work out from their accounts uh, what they were doing every month. So we, we eventually then decided to start publishing uh, a monthly figure for it. Um, and it's perhaps the only evidence available uh, widely of, the, of trading in gold between central banks. And at times it's been quite extensive. I mean, at one point the gold swaps were over 500 tons of gold, which is an awful lot of gold, when you consider that a lot of countries don't hold anything like that amount of gold. I mean, the UK, for example, only holds about 300 tons. So it, it was interesting and then it's gone from there. So I just tend to sort of check it every month. And, and as we were talking earlier, it, it is probably the only evidence we have of the fact that these uh, gold is being traded uh, regularly by central banks. And it's actually therefore quite important. It isn't really the relic that they often like to pretend that it is. So I hope that sort of monologue is uh, you know, an interesting introduction into it. Um, and all I do is, is encourage anybody who is interested to kind of look at those papers and then you can get to understand a lot more about how the, uh, the BIS accounts of gold and what it does. I mean, it is quite a technical subject, not easy to explain over a, an interview like this. Um, but, the, you know, the, there's, the research work is there if people want to look into it. Yes, and we have the links to those in the description field below. So if you're watching at home, you can go down there and take a look at those to get a little better insight. And <clears throat> Bob, I'm pulling up one of your reports for GATA. Here mm -hmm. you have a table of the swaps reported in the BIS reports. Here we can see the yearly figures as we go down to the monthly figures there. We see a couple of the months where it was over 500 tons, as you mentioned. And you touched on uh, on this a little bit, but perhaps for people who are new to this topic, if first you could explain what the swap is actually doing, what you think it's being used for, and then maybe after that we can dig into anything that you've been able to pull out from some of the, the changes, the increases and decreases that we've seen over the past couple of years. Okay, well, the, the, the swap is really a transaction whereby um, 
the the a bullion bank. But I should probably explain one thing. All of these swaps are done with bullion banks. Um, we can be fairly confident that the gold swaps are not being done with the BIS and other central banks. It's also, I think, important for me to make it clear that the BIS are acting as an agent when they do these swaps. They're acting as an agent for another central bank. For all sorts of reasons, the conclusions that we've come to is that they are probably acting for the Federal Reserve. But the swap involves um, a bullion bank would say have, um, I don't know, let's say 100 tons of gold somewhere, uh, probably stored um, maybe in London, maybe in Zurich, maybe in New York. And they would swap that gold into the ownership uh, temporarily uh, for a period of time to, uh, to the BIS, who would then transfer it on to the uh, the Federal Reserve, say, and in exchange for that, they get dollars and they can use those dollars for a period of time. So it's really just a, a straight swap. But at the end of the swap, and the swap will have a you know a duration, maybe it's a year, maybe it's less. We don't really know very much at all about the duration of the swaps of the BIS issue. But it'll have a, and at the end of the that, that duration, at the end of that period, the, the the gold has to be returned, and and the dollars have to be returned. But very often, the gold probably doesn't move from one vault to another. It probably just stays in the same place, right. uh, and and it's. Uh, it's this that is makes it so easy because for all sorts of reasons, physically moving gold is very difficult because of the costs and risks of doing so. That makes a lot of sense, obviously, uh, and we can touch on this in a little bit. You talked about some of the challenges during World War II and other periods where they were actually trying to transport gold and especially during wartime, not the easiest thing to do. So. Now that we have a better understanding of what these swaps actually are, can you walk us through, uh, here we have from 2010 to 2023, some of the changes here and any of the conclusions? Well, able to... it's, it's, yeah, sorry, I've cut across you, Chris. Yeah, it's, look, it's incredibly difficult to know. I mean, this is one of the things with all this. The, uh, I, if I could offer you an explanation of what's going on, I would. But, but often we, we don't know, we can only hazard a guess. I've tried to try, a, you know, experiment by linking them to gold price movements, but I, I've, I've found it very difficult to do so. Uh, but I mean, I think the key thing that we would want to draw and, uh, you know, to people's attention towards is the fact that this, tr this is a regular trading. That, you know, if you go to the second table, table B, you'll see that month by month, the, the figures can go all over the place. You know, they, they can trade significant sums of gold. I mean, I, I'm happy to conjecture what might be going on. And, and um, you know, but I, I've got to make it clear that this is my guess. And what I think has happened is, I think, as you will well know, GATA got some work done several years ago by a chap called Frank Veneroso, who, and that research, I think, is vital for people to read if they're interested in it. And and Frank came very much to the conclusion that a lot of the gold, you know, had gone from possibly from the Federal Reserve, or at least there were lots of claims on the same bar of gold if we can call it that and and i think that is perhaps what we think is going on 
Um, the bullion banks are arguably the trustees to the big ETFs that do these swaps. And this is probably some of the gold from the big ETFs that are being swapped back to the Fed, uh, we think. That's our conjecture. And therefore, we, we think it's probably part of the operation of covering the fact that several, uh, several of these uh, gold bars are actually charged to several people at once. Right. That's our best guess. But I can't pretend that I, I, I can say I, I, I can answer that, because if I can answer that, I could probably uh, be, be in a position to force the gold price to go to, uh, you know, up a lot. But we, we simply don't know. Although I know you've contacted the BIS and they've given you detailed explanation of the gold flows and what's going on. And oh, yeah, they did, I'm sure they'd clear. love that. They, that, 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 they are not the most uh, welcoming of organizations to get information out. Chris, Chris Powell will write to them from time to time. Uh, they usually manage to reply, but we get very little information from them. Even uh, getting publication dates for some of their publications is, uh, is like getting blood out of stone. Yeah, I can imagine they give him uh, some Christmas greetings. Thanks for writing. And that's about it. Oh, yeah, um, I think they're very polite. Does this set up a dynamic? You've talked about how some of the gold may have multiple claims on it. Obviously, we know that on the COMEX and the exchanges, we have multiples of the amount of gold and silver that's mined each year, traded sometimes in a day. Is this setting up something similar to what we saw with the failure of the London gold pool, where eventually countries began repatriating their gold and that led to a collapse of the arrangement they had back then. Do you, is it similar uh, to what we were? Well, I, I, I think our conjecture would be, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry to sound slightly, uh, you know, putting a caveat in, but I think at, at every stage it's important just to make it clear, you know, we don't know a lot. You know, all we know is that they trade this gold actively month by month. And and therefore, you know, gold is important. It is not a relic. That is, I mean, the key message, really, that, that comes from this. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I think that at some point that's going to be the thing that blows the system apart, isn't it? Yeah. And I, and I agree with what you're saying, the idea that gold is just a relic or a doorstopper, Again, we don't need to take my opinion or, or anyone's specific opinion. Rather, we see what has happened with the BRICS. We see even in the U.S. where states are doing legislation around gold and silver and perhaps most significantly seeing the record central bank gold buying over the past two years now. So I'm, I'm sure they're not buying it and just leaving around the office, propping their doors open. No, um, I don't think so, yeah. So it sounds like you think that a lot of these swaps could have had the impact of leaving gold and silver prices lower. Do you think there is a reshuffling going on right now? We, You and I talked before we hit the record button about how the Dutch central bankers have talked about their uh, gold revaluation accounts and that they've prepared for if something happens to the system. Is that the feeling you get without knowing exactly what's happening? Let, let, let me just, if I can, come in a slightly obtuse, obtuse way. Um, look, I think there's a lot going on in the gold market itself that would argue that what you just said is correct. 
But I think the other thing, if you look at what is the alternative as far as a lot of these people are concerned, i.e. at central banks around the world, and a huge number of them have been holding U.S. treasuries. Now, if you analyze the U.S. treasury market, which is something else I do far less frequently, but when, when you look at what's been happening there, it does look very strange. I think when we were talking beforehand, I mentioned this fact that, you know, we did some work looking at quantitative tightening in the U.S. You know, the, the, the Federal Reserve has been trying to sell off some of the bonds it's bought. And there's a report that we put out on GATA whereby you see that the quantitative tightening seems to be um, uh, extremely linked to getting hedge funds to buy U.S. treasuries, doing a thing called a basis trade where they short the futures uh, and they uh, buy the treasury bond. And uh, if you read the report, which has been done, you'll notice that probably this is something where maybe the Fed has actually induced them into doing this by offering them a, a ready-made trade. That's what it looks like to me, that they've offered a ready-made trade. Now, you know, hedge funds holding long-term treasuries? Hmm, that doesn't sound a sort of happy home to me. I don't know if it does to you, but it doesn't sound. So I think all the signs are there that the treasury market is you know, is it possibly closer to its limits than they ever want to admit? Uh, obviously, the, you know, the borrowing is going on and on and on. I mean, it's nearly up to 34 trillion now, I believe. I think it's the last figures I looked at, I think were 33.7 trillion. So it's, it's getting there. And November was a deficit of uh, point, uh, point 0.3 trillion. So, you know, if it carries on like that, it isn't going to be long before it's over. So I think there's all sorts of evidence that th this thing is coming to, a, to an end at some point relatively soon. Uh, I mean, I'll go on. I mean, I, my own feelings on this, having decided before that I you know, had a good feel that it was going to end at, at other occasions, is I'm just not so sure at the moment because of all the other things that are going on. And, you know, next year's um, an election year, is it not? Presidential election year in the USA. Um, if it was all to blow up uh, for Mr. Biden next year, uh, I think his re-election chances, whoever is facing, uh, are, are not great. So I wonder whether it will be stretched yet again. And remember, they've been doing this in, in my eyes. They've been doing this successfully for over 30 years. So they can probably manage to eke out another year if they really, really try. So that's why I just you know, add a note of caution. Um, I also wonder, uh, because I do look at the oil market as well, I also wonder if the oil, the oil price um, would be moving higher than it is currently if, if we were about to see a bust. But that is just a throwaway remark. Yeah, and I know as we were talking leading up to the interview, you mentioned how perhaps the sentiment in the gold space heading into 2024, this is the most optimistic You've seen people in in terms of whether we're close to some sort of break, which is interesting in its own right, because if you follow the sentiment of gold and silver investors day by day, it's some ways people are, you know, coming back off the ledge a little bit with the rally over the past couple of months. I think the folks who are involved in the mining stocks are feeling a little less easy yet. There is a great degree to which people in gold were even seeing from the bank reports calling for higher gold prices and 
I think especially with the rate cuts that now got confirmed a little bit more recently for 2024, there's a lot of optimism that something could happen. Although, again, uh, you think that it, you lean towards 2024 not being the year, and that's mainly due to well, the just trying to string it together through that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just looking at the politics, I guess, or the political cycle rather than the politics, I should probably say more correctly. And I just wonder whether, you know, they fought, they fought for this, they, they've kept this gold suppression going for a long time. Are they really going to surrender in, in an election year? You know, I mean, it's a question. I don't know the answer, but, you know, I'm just a little bit more cautious, perhaps, than some about it, even though I, I think the Treasury market, for example, looks looks in quite a state to me. Is there any other way you see this ultimately getting resolved? Let's leave aside the timeline for now. But I think we learned a lot in 2023 and 2022 in terms of seeing that. Now, there are some who still look at the Treasury market. Janet Yellen says everything is great and it's time to celebrate. A lot of uh, well-respected analysts, you and I have talked about Luke Groman, who we both uh, mm. quite a bit, and he's talked plenty about just the, the massive supply of Treasuries that are coming online where a lot of the traditional buyers going away. And again, leaving the timeline aside, we have seen the world in certain parts look towards gold. So it's not just maybe 10 or 20 years ago, we were speculating of what should happen or what might likely happen. Do you think there is any other resolution to some of these debt loads that not just in the US, but globally, is, is there another way this can be unwound? Well, there's, I mean, there's possibly something that I wouldn't have thought about. You know, I mean, I'm I, I'm not trying to pretend I'm some guru. You know, I mean, I'm just uh, uh, someone who's looked at this and hopefully with a degree of common sense. But I mean, fundamental to all of this is gold price suppression. So you've been suppressing the price of gold. I think any solution probably has to involve gold being set free to an extent, maybe not fully, but you know, a, a, a substantial uplift in the price. And I can't see how you can avoid that. I don't think anything else provides a solution. Yeah. And in terms of the time that you've been doing this with GATA or even beforehand or all the things you've come across since, anything else that stands out in your mind as really a, a particularly large smoking gun or if you were talking to someone who was new to all of this and saying, you think that there's been an impact from all these different types of trading on gold and silver prices. Any particular bullets that you think would be key from what you've seen that that people should know about or look into further? Well, I mean, I, I think I'd encourage anybody in your audience who is interested, you know, to just go and go to the Gala website, which is a fabulous, um, you know, wealth of information in terms of what's there. I mean, Chris Powell does a terrific job collecting it all. And if you go back and look at some of the stuff that's there, uh, you've got the um, some of the stuff from Summers, you know, Lawrence Summers, who is arguably one of the authors of the gold price suppression. And, and you've got all sorts of other things on there, including the work by Reg Howe, who, who looked originally at uh, the work that was done under Clinton to probably start uh, suppressing the gold price. 
there's information on a chap called Jan Zilstra, who was head of the BIS, the Bank of International Settlements, who also uh, reported that he thought the gold price was being suppressed. And I've already mentioned the work by uh, Frank Venerosa. So there's a lot of stuff that's gone on in the last 30 years that I would encourage people to read for themselves. I mean, I, I just think with all of this, because I'm not in a position, I don't, and I don't think anybody is, unless they've got terrific inside information. Um, I don't, you, know, you can't actually prove any of it, really. You can say, look, all of these things coming together, it really does look like someone's out there trying to keep the gold price down. But if you go through, read all the individual bits, and that's what happened to me all those years ago. I eventually looked at all some of this stuff. I mean, some of it hadn't even been written back then. Um, but, you know, you look at it and you eventually become convinced that something's going on. There's some hand that is pushing the gold price down. I mean, look at Bill, you know, Bill Murphy. I mean, you know, as, as you well know, Bill Daly um, gets very worked up about the fact that the gold price doesn't behave like any other market. And, you know, if it, he knows that. And, and it, it's so worth listening to his expertise in, in terms of trading the markets. I mean, I, I you know, my, my private nickname for him and Chris are the Dynamic Joe. I won't tell you who's Batman and who's Robin, but I mean, you know, the two of them together are, uh, are terrific in terms of uh, knowing what's been going on in the gold market. And, and I'd always listen to what they've got to say. They both did presentations recently at the uh, conference in New Orleans, and they are well worth looking at. And all of their presentations over the years are well worth looking at. But you've got, if, if you want to really understand it, I think you've got to go and do a lot of reading, unfortunately, because there's a lot there to, to understand. Yes, there certainly is. And uh, yeah, I, I often root for higher silver price for Bill. Uh... I know that will certainly make him happy one day when we see that and love to check in on Bill. And he's usually not happy about where silver is trading on a given day, although. I know. Well, I mean, I don't, I, I don't know what price he wants it now, but I mean, it was, it's a fair few years ago. It was a lot. He thought it should be a lot higher than when it is now, certainly. Well, hopefully we're getting closer to the point where we see that happening. Um, another thing that I wanted to ask you about is we had a couple questions from a big fan of yours in Dave Kranzler, who is a regular on our broadcast over here. He had a couple questions, wanted to run by you. Um, and certainly as people are going through some of the reports that you've mentioned, um, could you explain what you mean in terms of site accounts at central banks versus we also have the earmark accounts? And perhaps you could just give a understanding of that, the difference between those two. Well, really, site accounts are unallocated gold. OK, so if you like paper gold, it, I mean, it's slightly more than that, but it is that that's it. And earmarked accounts are allocated gold. So if if um, let, let's use the example of the Second World War, um, there was some. Not very much, but there was some German gold that was stored in London. It was in London during the entire Second World War, but it was there in a BIS account. I think it, from memory, it was in an earmarked account. So that would that would mean that 
the the Germans had sent fifty say fifty bars because it's easier to talk in numbers. They'd sent fifty bars of gold to London, but they'd rooted it as a BIS account. So as far as London was concerned, this was BIS gold, and it was in an earmarked account. And that gold specifically, each of the bars would have a serial number. That gold had to be returned and was returned at the end of the war by the UK. So the BIS doing these accounts, it, it provides protection. So there is an element of gold that the BIS have in their accounts that comes from uh, they don't specify which countries they come from, but they probably come from some of the countries that one would deem probably unfriendly to the West. OK, but because they're in BIS and then they're maybe deposited with the Federal Reserve, maybe the Bank of England, you know, who are, I don't know. But because they're in the BIS accounts, they're protected and they will get returned to them at some stage. So the BIS run two types of account, earmarked, which is specific gold bars, site accounts, which is a general claim on gold that's there. And these accounts grew when gold was used, uh, you know, as trading for foreign exchange. So, for example, if, if Belgium was trading with Holland and they were using gold as, as, as a currency, rather than physically, you know, they bought Holland had bought something from Belgium. And, and then Belgium had bought something else from Holland. They would just net the movement and never move any gold. It would just be a, a book change in the site accounts. Uh, and so, if you think of the, it was at the Bank of England, say the, at the vault. They, I don't know if they even physically do this. They might move some bars from the the, the um, Belgium to, to the Holland or the Holland to the Belgium, depending on the weight of the trade was. And so, site accounts really grew for trade for trading gold. And the earmarked accounts were meant to represent much more permanent gold that would be there for you know maybe twenty years, um, and and obviously the gold was used to, to for international trade. It was the way it all it was all done. I mean, uh, I'm sure that people who understand this far better than me will tell you that certain countries probably accepted each other's currencies and they didn't go to that length, but but some people wouldn't do that. Um, some people would want the, sure, you know, the assurances of gold. And I suspect it's one of the reasons why if, if the BRICs eventually do move towards you know, a different system for themselves, why gold seems to be the, the obvious way for them to do it. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And last thing I wanted to touch on that you mentioned a little bit earlier was the BIS's role going back to World War II and I will pull up these uh, reports that you sent over that are also in the description field below, but some interesting history. And obviously when we think about how gold was transported all the way back then, especially during wartime, some fascinating things to dig into and anything you could highlight on those. Well, I mean, uh, if, if you go onto Wikipedia, for example, um, you people might find if they're interested in this, but the UK quietly sent uh, most of its gold to Canada during the war, um, and because of the risks, that, that's right, Operation Fish. I was yeah, I could call it Operation Trout. It showed I couldn't remember very well, but Operation Fish, and, and uh, this was all done very secretly because, of course, if if the, any of these ships had been sunk, it would have been a disaster. 
you know, because the UK had to use most of its gold during the war to buy uh, munitions and uh, equipment from the United States so that it could uh, keep fighting the Germans. It, it's worth reading. Yep. And what what was the role that the BIS was was doing during that time period as well? Well, I mean, during the war, the BIS kept going. Um, I can't remember the name, but the, the head of the BIS for much of the war was an American. Uh, and I think a lot of people thought he was put there by the CIA. I don't know if that's true, but they 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 did still actively receive gold from Germany and send gold back, I think, occasionally to Germany. Uh, and they tried to keep routes open to everybody. Uh, indeed, the modern BIS, interestingly enough, uh, I'm pretty sure I'm correct on this, um, has not um, removed Russia from its approved list of central banks. I believe the Russian central bank is still a member of the BIS. Uh, so despite all of the sanctions that, you know, being put against Russia, uh, I, I believe Russia is still actively participating. I think I'm right that one of the newspapers, probably the Financial Times from memory, did start questioning this and they got a statement out of the BIS. But I must admit, I went through the last BIS annual report to see if I could find any official comment on the, the Russian situation. And uh, believe me, it's a very big document, so I may well have missed it, but I couldn't find a thing. Well, I know they don't always make it so easy to find the details there, but I, I know there are a lot of people who appreciate all the information you're going through and providing some summary of what you find. And also that you're willing to admit when there's stuff that we don't know and not drawing conclusions uh, inappropriately. So. Yeah, I think I think people look. If people read all the stuff I've read, they can draw their own conclusions. You know, where I think that's the important thing. I mean, you know, individuals should make their own minds up. I'd always encourage that. I encourage my kids to do that, and I'd always encourage everybody. Well, I appreciate that, and Bob. Perhaps as we're rounding out 2023 now, any final words of wisdom or insight or anything to the gold and silver community that you would feel important for them to know or want to pass along as they head into 2024 that we haven't touched on yet? Well, I I, I think all I'd say is just remember how incredibly successful uh, the people doing the gold price suppression have been don't get too confident would be my words okay well certainly good to keep in mind and we'll see what this year has in store i think the rate cuts that we got increasing confidence from the fed last week are coming will at least provide for a whether we see a, a big big number or not in 2024 i think there's a lot of good momentum going that we're have a solid foundation going into the year and I, but I, I don't doubt that the price could go up, you know, a reasonable amount, maybe 25%, say. But does that really you know, provide you the full payback that you need to get out of this suppression? I mean, I can see a case where the suppressors might say, you know, if we can get away with things for a few more years by letting the price go to 2,500, well, so be it. We'll do it. Yeah. They might feel they can contain that. But I mean, uh, I, I think it's, um, you know, 
in the end, I mean, I think the, the great thing would be if all forms of meddling with God stop, but that's probably uh, wishing for utopia, I guess. Well, I guess we'll just keep tracking it. And fortunately, people can find your great writing at gata.org, where you can sign up, get their emails for free that get delivered along with, I believe it's a monthly report that you put out on this uh, is, is once a month, Bob? Yeah, it, approximately. What what tends to happen is that we only put one out when they actually publish it, and you have a period of time when when reports don't come out. So uh, they they publish a thing called the statement of account each, supposedly each month, but close to the cl close to the period after their year end, they don't publish these reports uh, monthly. You get two in one month, so there's a quiet period um, around about March April time. Well, I'm glad we have someone who is covering that and digging through that. And certainly I know if there's any changes or substantial uh, developments that happen, fortunately, people have a place to go. So, Bob, really appreciate you making some time. It's been a pleasure to finally meet you. And I think a lot of people are grateful for what you're doing and researching some of these topics and at least having a good source of information going forward and also not saying gold's going to $20,000 tomorrow, but really laying out clearly what you're seeing and what what we're taking educated guesses on, what we know and putting that in perspective. So thank you so much for joining me and we'll have to catch up again soon, my friend. Okay, Chris, thank you very much. <laughs>